Today's episode is sponsored by Lowen Games, the makers of Deliverance. Deliverance is an epic co-op tactical adventure about angels, demons, and the saints caught between. Take on the role of elite angelic warriors and discover the mystery of the demonic obsession with the small town of Fallbrook. Deliverance has a rich Christian fantasy theme intricately woven into the gameplay, and it offers a highly replayable skirmish mode perfect for game night as well as a story-driven campaign. So be sure to check out Deliverance on Kickstarter right now. And if you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about self-publishing. We're talking about why you should, or maybe should not, self-publish. And we're talking to Andrew Lowen of Lowen Games. Andrew, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gabe, for having me back. Uh, it is. You have an awesome show. I'm so excited to be a part of it. And a uh, longtime listener, third time caller. <laughs> yeah, man. Really glad to have you back. You know, the episodes we did, we did a, a two part series a while back about marketing. And those are some of the most downloaded episodes uh, in show history. And so I was really excited to have you back and talk through some other things, a different topic, talking about business, talking about self publishing the things you've been thinking about lately as you were making the decision, do I want to go the traditional route, signing a contract, licensing over my IP, my game, my baby to other people, or do I want to handle this thing myself? And uh, yeah, you actually brought me in to consult and ask about different things and kind of get my feedback as far as the industry and doing it yourself and all that. And so I was really glad to kind of help out with this project in some minor ways. But anyway, really glad to have you on the show. But before we get into the topic, give me a quick bio. Who are you? How you got into game design? All that kind of thing. You got it. And I'll try to make it uh, different than last time. And first of all, by the way, the reason that those podcast episodes are probably so downloaded is because I think I share them with every single client that comes across our doorstep. Uh, so my, uh, my name is Andrew Lowen. I run a digital marketing agency called Next Level Web. I've done that for over a decade. And uh, about 18 months ago, we started um, marketing board games. And uh, that we had some success with that. And I just, you know, when... when um, Toward the, toward the beginning of that arc, I think late 2019, you know, December 2019, I jumped on your podcast because I just was so motivated to share something with, with people that would help them avoid make, making the mistakes that I see so often. And um, now here we are a year and a half after that. So I guess it's approaching two years that we've been marketing Kickstarters and we've done uh, about 50 campaigns we've mar we we work with ips like uh uh elder scrolls we're doing elder scrolls skyrim we did um we're doing star trek fallout um gosh uh conan vampire the masquerade um uh, we've worked with uh uh ascension uh, a lot of other really great companies and ips 
And um, we we even started a podcast of our own on marketing nerd stuff. And um, it's called crowdfunding nerds. But that's uh, that's, you know, we've we've hired two employees since uh, November that focus specifically on Kickstarter stuff. And we're growing so fast. We we we're partnering with major companies that are that are hearing about our our marketing services um, and referring us. And it's kind of scary. And uh, and at the same time, I think, hey, why not start another business, um, uh, be a publisher? And uh, so that is how crazy I am. But in addition to that, I've got five daughters and uh, that are eight years old and under. And I've got a son who will be here uh, in a couple of months. I'm excited about that. I have the most patient wife of all time. And I am a huge nerd. Um, yeah, yeah, you're a you're a lunatic. Let me just say you, you got you got too much going on, man. Either that or you figured out how to get 36 hours out of a 24 hour day. Yeah, but yeah. I'm, I'm just amazed that uh, of all the output and like you said, and then all of that, you're like, you know what? I'm going to self publish my game. I'm going to start a publishing company. I'm going to handle all of that that stuff. And so that's what we're really talking about is kind of the thought process and how you made that decision. And now what does that mean? The pros, the cons, the different things that you were thinking about. Because I know a lot of people listening to this show are in a very similar situation of trying to figure it out. Do I want to go the traditional route of pitching a, a game to a publisher and then signing the game and then a two-year process of the game you know, being developed and having the art and the graphic design and then manufactured and kickstarted and all, all the stuff that goes into that? Or do I want to just do it all myself? And it's a big mm-hmm. decision, potentially. It's not massive. We're not talking about millions of dollars here, more than likely. Uh, but more, you know, but, but some people is. think you are. Yes, very true. That's something I think we should talk about is the money might not be what you hope. Uh, don't think you're going to be an outlier because you're probably not. And it's, it's always dangerous to hope you'll be an outlier. But anyway, we'll talk about that in a little bit. And so- If Frost you know, Haven you, could do it. Yeah, no doubt. Isaac Childers. And what, I mean, he was a first time designer. So- <laughs> Not at all, um, but <laughs> yeah. you know you you do have a lot going on. At the same time, the old saying is, if you want something done, ask a busy person because they've figured it out. Uh, they figured out how to manage their time. And so let's let's kind of get into that. First of all, tell me about your game. Give people kind of an idea of what we're going into because we're not talking about a hundred card card game. You know, a, a ten dollar thing. Okay, like this is a massive <laughs> project. This is way bigger than I would have ever tried first off, you know, personally. And so tell people about the game and then let's start talking about the traditional route versus self-publishing and we'll kind of get into all the details after. Very good. Yeah. So the game is called Deliverance. It is a, um, the the shortest way I can describe it is a Christian fantasy dungeon crawler. And whenever people hear the word Christian, their brain turns off. Like Christian's brain turns off and they think, oh no, a slightly worse retheme of an already existing game. And then, uh, you know, of course, uh, people that are non-Christian are like, oh, I don't want to like have to repent by game three in order to continue on in the campaign. You know, uh, how much Bible do I need to know? Right. So it, it's a very non-traditional game uh, for for I mean, this this industry. And, um, you know, it's it's just a, uh, a, a very interesting project. It's huge. It's a. Um, I mean, you you play angels in the army of heaven and you come down to this small modern day backwoodsy little town and, uh, you know, that's filled with demonic activity. And your job is to figure out what's going on and to slay demons until one of the uh, who, whom you suspect uh, one of the former uh, princes that served alongside you that has since fallen um and now leads the army of darkness from the shadows. You you suspect that one of these uh, mighty creatures is there, 
and it is your job to send that monster to the abyss. Um, so that is really the, I guess, the overview of Deliverance. You play epic angels, you fight kind of in the spiritual uh, realm, and um, it's really game first and a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, and it very much fits the Kickstarter dungeon crawler idea there's a bunch of miniatures there's a bunch of dungeon tiles the art looks really good it's a big box full of stuff right yes absolutely um in fact i even told my my fans we have several thousand uh, probably just over 3500 people on our email list now um although you know we just had a bunch of videos from reviewers drop uh recently and so that number is going up quite a lot but um it's definitely something that I, you know, I didn't want miniatures and my uh, fans were like, we need miniatures. And I eventually just caved and did minis and everyone was happy. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I definitely am struggling to keep it to the vision that I had originally set for it, which is, um, which was standees for the demons. And um, now we're doing miniatures for the angels. But if we make it this gigantic, ginormous box of plastic, I think that um, that's, you know, pretty typical for Kickstarter nowadays, but doesn't really fit the vision that I have uh, for the game, for the price point, you know, everything like that. Um, so it's a constant battle for, you know, uh, giving people what they want versus um, giving them what, uh, what I know that they need. Right. <laughs> Which, yeah, exactly. Uh, I just want people to understand, like, this is not your typical, hey, this is my first game going to Kickstarter. It's 18 cards. It comes in a micro 10, you know, Altoid 10. Like, this is not it. And this is, honestly, you're breaking a lot of my advice, Andrew. Uh, a lot of times I tell people, start small, start, very, you know, simply do something you know you mm -hmm. can fund, do it for like $3,000 and get your feet wet and all that. And you're not doing that. And I want yep. people to understand the kind of the bigger picture of what's going on, why you chose this route, why you're not doing some other things. And so let's get into it. When you first yeah. started desi designing this game, what was your initial plan? What was your initial vision? Were you going to go traditional? Tell me about that. Yeah. So uh, to first to answer, kind of address that, that advice, I totally get it. And I tell people the same thing. And uh, actually the thing that made me want to design deliverance and keep working on this monster of a project it's been over five years by the way by the time we go to kickstarter it will have been five years and eight days since i started work on deliverance and for the last maybe three years i have um neglected every other design in my uh i guess my catalog if you will to focus solely on deliverance um and the reason that he did that was there was this article that Jamie Stegmeyer um, gave. Uh, it was a, you know years ago now, but um, it basically said, should you start big or should you start small? And his response at the time was one that really influenced my decision, which was play or do the do the thing that you're passionate about. And I really desperately want to have a game under my belt that I successfully delivered, you know, that was like a, you know, $3,000 micro game that could prove that I am able to handle the logistical nightmare of international shipping and, and deliver on time and that sort of thing. Um, I don't have that. This is going to be my first game. And the reason for that is because I is the thing I am passionate about. I have played this game over a thousand times and um, you know, my, I have people all around the world that really love it and I am just as passionate about it now as as I was before. And I think that's so important. Passion is extremely important. So, you know, do do what you're passionate about was the advice that I got from that blog. And and uh, that's kind of what has carried me forward. So but I did not originally intend to um, to make this thing my own. I actually thought 
you know, just like, I mean, maybe most people when they're, um, they're thinking about a thing they really wish existed, they're like, man, I really wish the thing existed. If only a thing existed like this. And, uh, for me, I, my wife sent me out on a run. I remember I wasn't, it was a particularly rough day. I think it was a rough day at work. And, um, she just, I don't really like running very much, but she made me go out on, on a run. And, uh, I was thinking about, uh, just, you know, your mind wanders when you go out on a run. You're just, I didn't have a podcast in my ears or anything like that. Um, I just kind of got out, put my running shoes on and, you know, kind of started jogging around the neighborhood. And I thought about how epic the, uh, there's this, uh, Bible story about, uh, Michael, the archangel disputing with Satan over the body of Moses. And, uh, it was written in a book called Jude that was just about, um, it was, it was kind of about, uh, it was written by a guy, brother of Jesus that was, uh, to, to all of these people about things that they would have understood examples. So he used commonly understood examples to, uh, these people contextually, um, you know, when it was written, these people would have understood what he was talking about. And Michael disputing with Satan over the body of Moses is not something that I, that I understand. I was like, where did that come from? I'd love to learn more about that, you know? And I thought, you know, to me, while I was on my jog, like, what did they do? Right. Um, did they use words? Did they use weapons? You know, how do they dispute? How does an angel and the father of lies dispute? right? The archangel himself and the father of lies. Right. So I just, it was just a thing that, that, um, entered my head at that point. And, um, my wife generally felt kind of uncomfortable with, with magic. You know, for me, I played world of Warcraft for easily 30,000 hours and, you know, uh, love just nerd stuff like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and you name it. And, uh, my wife just kind of felt uncomfortable with a lot of that stuff because, uh, um, well, for reasons, right, related to her faith. And I just, I was like, man, if only there were a game that existed that I could throw a fireball into a demon's face and turn it into ash by the power of God, my wife wouldn't feel bad about it because, hey, this this magic, it basically is a gift, you know, given by God and there's nothing to feel like you're compromising. She's, so she wouldn't be compromising her faith. And for me, I wouldn't be compromising the quality of gameplay. And that's really where the idea for deliverance began, because that angels versus demons theme can perfectly encapsulate that experience um, and offer what both my wife and I wanted. She's my player number two. So I wanted a game that I could kind of get into that that fantasy um, uh, genre that I love so much and that she could also enjoy with me without having to feel like, oh, I'll do it for him, but I just don't feel good about it. You know, it's like kind of annoying. It's a. Uh, you just want the person playing with you to have fun, right? So that was where the genesis of the idea came from, pun so intended. So yeah, so the idea was um, I had a business already. I did not intend to self-publish this game. And so it was uh, something that I wanted to um, make it because I just felt like there was no one else in the entire world. I mean, if there was somebody that had this vision, they would have made it, right? And uh, there was no one else in the entire world that could get it right. And I, I'm going to do this. Uh, very um, foolish and uh, stupid, but here, here we go, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm going for it. And my, my full intent was to make sure that I made a really cool thing that someone else could publish. And, uh, you know, I, I, again, I had a... a 
marketing business already. I wasn't interested in starting another business. Um, what I thought I would do is I thought I would do all the, you know, the development, the playtesting, the, um, you know, even the art, because I felt like, you know, it's, it's just really easy with this type of game to go wrong somewhere. And then your, your core fan base is just not going to, not going to like it. So I thought I'll do all those things. And then I'll say, Hey, here publisher is this nice package wrapped up with in a little bow. It is fully ready for you to take and make a million dollars with it. And uh, I just like to see it come into existence and I'll take a percentage of, uh, you know, sales or whatever. And, um, you know, we'll be off to the races. That was my original intent. And, um, and you even had the market built in, like you said earlier, you have 3,500 email list subscribers. <laughs> so you were already doing the market, like you were already doing a lot of the publisher's job for them. And so it's, it's just a very interesting situation. All right. So pick it up, pick it up there. Okay. So yeah, th now I, I also thought, so this is a, a very different type of game. It is something that, um, is unproven in the marketplace. And as a marketer, um, that is sketchy. Why would a publisher want to take a really cool looking game that is there where they're going to just be hated on? Right. Uh, it, it, that's, that would be for the most part, you know, when you, you, you want to remain secular as a, as a board game publisher, because I mean, you know, Christians and non-Christians both love the same games, you know, you're, you're going to really alienate a lot of a player base. And, and so I thought, if somebody's going to take a risk on this, it needs to not be like such a high risk. It needs to have a built-in fan base that wants to see it come to ex existence, right? And um, come into existence. And so I thought if I can prove without spending marketing dollars on, um, you know, on a game that it, or on the game, you know, like in Facebook ads or whatever, if I can prove that the market truly wants this um, organically, then that's going to be something that will really convince a publisher that they should take a risk on this project. And, you know, maybe the right publisher would jump in. Right. And so I went and I built over a thousand emails completely organically. Um, at the time this was, you know, I guess, uh, un uh, if you, you know, big air quotes unveiled the first prototype in like 2018 or, or so, maybe 2017, 2018. And we were playing at a local convention that I was going to go to anyway. I played with friends. I played at my local game stores game night and just started building interest and in people jumped at all my email list, created a Facebook page, Facebook group. Uh, before I even had a website, I would you know, talk about the game. I would share uh, something that I was working on, like in the board game design lab community, I would share and people would say, oh, that looks interesting and jump into the Facebook group. Um, and uh, so we, over time, my goal was to get one new contact a day on average. And um, eventually after about a year and a half, we built up to about a thousand emails and I knew that it had legs. I'm like, dude, this, th the market wants this because it's not easy to just organically build that many emails. It, it takes time, but I knew that, you know, this would be a really important piece to take to a publisher. Yeah. And this is something for people, no matter what your plan is, self-publishing or traditional publishing, if you can build an email list, if you can go to a publisher, maybe you're at a convention, maybe you're at a, a speed dating event or something like that. And you sit down and you say, here's my pitch. Here's my game. And oh, by the way, I have a thousand people on an email list that already want to buy it. 
like that just puts you mm-hmm. in a whole nother category as far as people that they would potentially want to work with. And it's going to make them think more heavily about your, your game. It's, it's very similar to, you know, if Eric Lang, Elizabeth Hargrave, Jay Cormier, like some of these people that are really well known, they've done a lot of games. If they say, Hey publisher, I've got a new game uh, design. Do you want to see it? People go, of course, because yep. there's already a track record. There's already been something established. And you might think, well, I'm a first time designer. I don't have that. But if you have a bunch of emails on a list and you say, Hey, you know, I'm a nobody as far as like, I don't have any games published yet or whatever, but I'm a somebody because a thousand people are really interested in this game. Now you're in a very similar situation as already published designers. And it's all about, you know, helping yourself stand out from the crowd. And this is an excellent way to do it. Absolutely. And, you know, even let's say if uh, Deliverance funds and makes, uh, I don't know, $100,000 or whatever on Kickstarter, um, I can still go and I've had clients uh, of, of ours that that have done this. I can still go to a publisher and say, look, the first edition funded with, you know, whatever, 1500 backers on Kickstarter and we're doing an expansion. Would you like to be the new publisher of Deliverance? And that's something that is you're just playing at a higher level at that point. If we make a million dollars, I'm sure that if Isaac Childers went to Asmodee and said, hey, we raised 13 million dollars for Frosthaven and I've got 10 expansions planned. Asmodee would say, well, we're kind of idiots if we don't take a serious look at this. Um, and this is basically what happens in business all the time. I've got, you know, uh, other clients that are non-board game clients that, uh, let's say one uh, runs preschools. Um, they do pretty well. A bigger preschool is going to look at them and try to buy them. Um, and if, if that's what you want to do, then that's your, they call it a golden parachute if you make enough money, right? That's the whole goal of business. I mean, we don't, uh, as a business person, you shouldn't be starting a business with the intent to work in your business office until you die of old age. You know, um, you should eventually plan on selling. You need to have an exit strategy. That's whole. That's part of being a business person. And so, even at the very beginning, with a with a board game that has an email list of people where you're really excited, you're kind of selling it to a publisher. Gotcha. All right. So walk me through a step back. You have the game. You're already doing a lot of the art. You're doing a lot of the legwork that normally the publisher would do. You're building up the marketing. You're doing all sorts of stuff. At what point did you start thinking, you know, maybe I'll just do do this whole thing myself? Tell me about that conversation. Maybe it was yeah. with yourself. Maybe it was other people. Tell me about that process. So um, we have several publishers that were very interested. In fact, we received many offers. Um, we received different types of offers. Uh, I got what I wanted. You know, I got um, so there were, and I can even talk about the types of contracts that we were that we were offered. Um, but uh, we were offered some, you know, uh, more humble like designer contracts with a seven percent royalty on the um, kick the the entirety of the Kickstarter or ten percent on the entirety of the Kickstarter and then seven percent in uh, future sales after that on the I believe is the gross or the net profit or the something basically it was a flat fee per game and that that was defined in the contract um, you know if it sold on Amazon if it sold to a distributor if it sold to you know from the website and that sort of thing um, uh, so it, you know I guess to go through those um, briefly, we, you know, that I, I did, I just felt like, so we did all the, all the art, we did all of the art and all of the play testing, all, I mean, it was literally ready to go with, with an excited fan base. And, you know, I, I, I assumed that, uh, you know, publisher would need to play test it and other things like that, but they all played it and they were like, this is ready. So 
where you know here's here's your contract and what do you, what do you think um so the seven percent royalty felt too low for me because i had invested a lot into the art and other things like that and also of course the the marketing and whatnot i felt like i i deserve more and so they're like yeah you know what you're right um we're going to give you a, a contract that is the designer slash artist contract which is actually a 15 percent royalty the idea was that they didn't have the money you know they weren't they weren't going to pay whatever fifty thousand dollars up front to me or something like that but what they do is they would give me a higher percentage because all of those expenses that in essence amount to a risk for a publisher were taken care of so they did not have to um pay for art it was all done for them they just had to kind of bring it to uh, kickstarter and you know uh do all of the things related after all the logistical issues and whatnot uh servicing parts and whatever so they could afford to pay me a higher royalty um up front even though it would end up being a less profitable thing for them in the long term i mean you know if they made a third fourth fifth print run they wouldn't probably much care um that they had to you know um that would be a good problem to have i guess is is my point right um then uh so but the problem with both of those contracts it's weird because i never thought of this um the art I made the art. Am I, am I selling the art to them? Do they get the art or is it, is it something that, um, so it basically I would have to uh, give them the art and, um, they would own the game. So they could then let's say, um, you know, they, they would have full control over the game. So this is one of the things that I think a lot of people get into self-publishing because they want full control. So Gabe, uh, you and I actually briefly, you know, we just talked about publishing and whatnot, like, Hey, you know, is deliverance a fit? And we kind of had a conversation and I know that where you want to go is you want to go with Epic solo experiences. That's kind of like, you know, one of the major directions of, uh, of your company. You want to, um, publish games like that. And so, you know, pretty early on we thought, okay, well maybe it's not a great partnership, but you were a great mentor to me. And one of the challenges was full control. Um, do I need to give full control? And the answer is yes. If you are getting a royalty, it is the publisher's job to stay in business, to keep printing the game and selling the game and marketing the game and doing all the things for the game while you just sit there um, after all is said and done, taking a percentage of profit of, of their game and making it harder for them to do that, right? You know, if they didn't have to pay you that percentage, it would be easier to, to sell the game and, and all that, right? and run their business and, you know, stay financially solvent, right? So um, they own it. And so I thought, well, you know, what if they do something that I don't like, you know, and I'll just remain broad, but, uh, you know, certain things that let's say, going back to that initial vision that I had, the, the idea that my wife, I needed a game that she loved. And if, you know, let's say you could be, if, if you were an angel that could all of a sudden fall and be a bad guy now, or if you were a demon that could go be a good guy, um, it, it doesn't thematically fit and she would have had a problem with that. Right. So, um, I wanted to make sure that major blunders weren't made that, uh, that the target market wouldn't appreciate. And so I needed more control. That's why, or rather I desired more control. Um, and bottom line, it's just an equation that you have to run in your head. Is that something that you're willing to to deal with? A lot of the time, it's like I just feel like when I when I talk to you know our clients, our marketing clients, and they're like, "Oh, I want to be a self publisher." It's like, do you 
do you really though? I mean, maybe we'll talk about that later, but um, it's just a lot of work, you know, for just to, I mean, when, when you could earn a percentage of profit, I just think it's such a great idea, but it was too much. I looked at the, um, the situation and it was not the right one for us. So we actually received additional offers for full partnerships. Like we were offered 50% ownership in a publishing company so that they could publish our game. And uh, we received additional offers, which would be uh, like a, a limited partnership. Uh, we receive a percent of ownership, a percent of equity in the, in the company and a royalty um, on sales. The, uh, the idea would be I would have full direction or full uh, discretion on what we did with the game with, with deliverance rather, but not of course, any of their other properties. And then the full partner would be, Hey, I'm a partner that gets to decide which types of games we publish and that sort of thing. Um, and then I would have, you know, certain responsibilities to the company. And, uh, so we had that, you know, those situations happen. And, um, I eventually I decided that those weren't right either. And the reason for that was because, any self-respecting board game publisher that is a well I, is a business owner, they're not just going to want to give control of their business away to a uh, to a new guy, right? Unless they, I mean, it's just a very steep ask, right? And so, in essence, even though I had full, let's say, full control over Deliverance, there were still ways to lock up the project on either side. Let's say for whatever reason. You know, everybody has, um, you know, the the best of intentions when starting. But let's say if things got, um, you went sour, you would, you know, let's say I'm like, well, I don't like the this change, so it has to be my way. And they're like, well, we don't like how that's there, so we're not going to pay for it. <laughs> we're not going to run the Kickstarter. We're not going to publish it. And so you have just different ways at kind of a higher level to still stand in the way and exert control, exert influence. And I thought, you know, I just don't want to be in a situation like that. Um, And, you know, what else, what after, what about if, if I decided, um, you know, I wanted out at a certain point or they wanted out at a certain point. Um, There's, there's so much to, to kind of walk through, but the main driver behind why we decided to self publish this game were twofold. We wanted to see it come into existence. And then the second thing was we needed a certain amount of control that we couldn't get with our, with the available contracts. Right. And that's something so important for people to assess is when you're going the traditional route, you are signing away the rights to that IP, to that intellectual property that you have created, these characters you've made, this world you've built, all the story elements, all these things are now the property of someone else. And so if you wanted to do a sequel, if you wanted to do a follow-up game, if you wanted to do a game in the same world using the same characters and hopefully the same art and things like that, you have to go through that same publisher to do that. If, like for in your case, if you published Deliverance with a company if, and you wanted to make Deliverance 2, you would have to talk to them first and figure that out and work out a contract. And if they said, no, we don't want to do that and we don't want you to use the name and you can't use any of the art, well, oh, well, they, that's their right because they own it at that point. And so it's just yep. something to be aware of. Now, I'm not saying that to discourage anybody from going the traditional route. I think traditional is by and large the main way most people should go. And when, like you said, we'll get into self-publishing and the, the highs and lows in just a minute. And there's a lot of lows to think about. <laughs> uh, I don't want to discourage anyone, but I, I do want people to have both eyes wide open going in and realize you are signing away the rights to this thing uh, in hopes of, of getting a good return 
on that publisher's investment. They are, it's an investment in their mind and they're going to invest mm-hmm. in you as a designer and the design overall. They're going to invest in the art, the graphic design. They're investing in the manufacturing and all that stuff, hoping to turn a profit. And it needs to be a profit that not just makes money as a game, but also makes money to pay their bills and their salaries and their travel to convention. Like it has to pay for more than just, you know, it's, it's more than just, oh, we made a little bit of money on Kickstarter. Like <laughs> yeah. They're thinking about it as a business and trying to turn as much profit as, as possible to pay for all these other fixed costs that they already have. And so it's just a lot to be aware of. Uh, and when it comes to IP, like if you are really, really passionate about this thing, just just be aware of it uh, because you yeah. are signing signing it away. All right. So what if you didn't have the art? What if you had not spent so, mon- so much money and, and spent so much time and putting the art together and all that stuff? How would that have changed this equation at all? Yeah. So that that's a great question, actually. Um so the first thing, just so that to kind of fill people in, the way that I paid for the art uh, was over a period of, let's say, uh, three, it was three years and actually 2019, January 2019. So two and a half years or so that we started paying for art and uh, finished paying for art. And um, so there was a, so all of my extra disposable income basically went to deliverance. Um, a lot of people are not going to be in a situation where they're able to put $1,000 or $500 or whatever a month into a game, um, you know, $100 a month, right? And so it's um, it's a huge benefit. One of the biggest benefits of a publisher is that they have the cash flow and the connections to do it. And I find so many that self-publish, again, I, I market a lot of Kickstarter campaigns and I, I we turn a lot of projects down. I, we probably turned a hundred projects down in the last, you know, eight months or so, nine months. And um, the one of the primary reasons is because the art is bad. The art is bad. It's just not going to resonate. <laughs> you know, in our view, it's not going to resonate. You've got, you know, three different artists, one artist that did the uh, good guys, one that did the bad guys, and one that did the board. And they all are three very different art styles. You know, you've got vector art for the good guys and you've got illustrations for the bad guys that are cartoon Charlie Browns. And then you've got, you know, I don't know. Uh, anyway, it's just it's it's one of the easiest places to mess up. And so I recommend for the most part, you should never be putting money into your art unless you intend to self-publish. Um, that said, I decided differently because I felt that nobody else could get the art done right. I think the the vision that I had for the art was such that people needed to see it in order to, you know, again, it's, it's such a huge risk. It's like, well, how do I, you know, do we do Renaissance art? Do we do like godlike angels like uh, Diablos, Tyriel or something in between? And I felt that it was a really necessary component that had to be solved uh, for a publisher. So um, I would recommend that you don't do the art for the most part because the publisher might decide, hey, you know what? This game is awesome. Let's turn it into a zombie side. Um, you know, let's make it all about zombies, right? And they need to have the freedom to do that. Um, if I did all of this beautiful angel art and then let's say Simon picked it up, they could theme it into Cthulhu and they would be well within their rights to do that. And my art, even though I put a bunch of money in, would be worth nothing. They wouldn't be willing to pay for that. You know, it's like, hey, you made a $50,000 mistake or whatever, a $5,000 mistake. And uh, that's that's not the publisher's problem. So it's a risk that you take in order to, um, you know, to, if you want to do the art. Um, 
that sometimes works out, but you better be really, really sure that your art is important. And for me, it was um, it, absolutely from the beginning, it was like, hey, you have to use my art um, because I, because of the vision that I had for this game. I was really, really clear on that vision. Um, and I think that's actually one of the areas that uh, we'll probably talk about later, but vision is extremely important. You as the designer have the the vision and your uh, public don't expect your publisher to to understand what you do in inside your head about even about your target market you have to help you know kind of help them along help them understand why the market wants this and um for me i felt that the the art in fact actually with the publishers that i spoke with one of the main reasons that they were so open to having conversations with me was specifically because of the art it was awesome people loved it um, in fact, I, I'll say, you know, related to vision, one of the frustrations that I had was, uh, you know, one of our, one of the, uh, potential publishers was really excited about the project, but at the same time they were, I just felt like they didn't have, they weren't excited enough. Like, Hey, you know, you should think that this is way cooler than, than you do. And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, unveiled the first angel miniature and they were like, Oh yeah, that's cool. And then the, um, my, my audience went nuts. They, they just like flipped out. They were so excited. We got hundreds of likes on that miniature image. And then all of a sudden the publisher came back ridiculously excited. They were like, Oh my goodness, this is the best art ever. Why? It's because, you know, uh, a few hundred people said it was the best. And that really meant a lot to the publisher. So, um, the art in the end was kind of what, what sold it to the publishers. But, um, you know, it's, it's just, kind of funny how it worked out that way. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So let's talk about the downside of things. As you were making this decision, you were looking at all the upside. You get to control the whole project. You get to make more of the money. You get to own the IP. And if you want to do any follow-ups or expansions, you get to make sure it fulfills the vision that you set out. There's a lot of pros. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of cons. So what yep. were some of the things you were thinking about going in? Okay, this is this is going to suck. This is a huge negative. This is a thing that a publisher does that I hate, and I'm glad that they do it, and I don't have to normally. But And now if I'm self-publishing, i got to do it. What were those things? So the first thing is, I, you know, I've run a business for, you know, over 10 years. I've been a businessman. And um, it is probably one of the toughest experiences that I've gone through. Um, you, as a self-publisher you will go through that experience too, uh, or some version of the things that I went through. I decided, you know, especially the people that are like, oh, I'm just going to like quit and do this full time. Um, the reality of life is that you have bills every month that are due every month. And if you don't pay them, then you will be homeless. Um, you know, in some way, I mean, I know that some people aren't paying their rent right now because COVID, you can't evict people, but that's not going to work forever, you know, and you have to be able to pay the bills. And I've been in situations where I've had $1,500 of bills due, rent is due, and it's been due for 14 days. And on day 15, you get a mark on your credit um, and you can actually get potentially get evicted from your, from your apartment. For me, it was a little condo. And I've been negative $300 in the bank at that time. I remember one time buying a burrito from Taco Bell for $1.19 or whatever. It's like 99 cents maybe at the time. And that thing cost me $35 because I had an overdraft fee. Um, I just remember being at the lowest of lows, you know, in, in, you know, just trying to survive, trying to do the thing that I wanted, my dream 
of being a business, you know, in business for myself and making it work. And, and we went through significant hardship. And as a self-publisher, you are starting a business. You, you know, that's one of the things that I, it's, it's not, you know, for me, I, I look at, you know, I have one business that kind of pays the bills, wins the bread and, and that kind of thing. Um, I have, a, a you know, five employees now that, that are able to really help. And, um, you know, that, that is what allows me to leverage my time. But um, the business of self-publishing is something that, you know, I mean, a business is 12 hours a day of work. And if you have a full-time job, you have to figure out how to fit that into your, your life somehow. It's really tough, especially if you've got kids and other commitments and that kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's just, it, it is, it will eat you up if you're not ready, if you don't have a way to kind of uh, compartmentalize it, you know? And, um, so that was one of the major things I was thinking about is that I have, you know, it's going to be a, a bunch of time during each week that I would normally do other things like, you know, maybe watch Netflix or something, um, you know, relax and you can't move at a million miles an hour for 24 hours a day and expect to live very long. So you need to be able to compartmentalize. And so one of the most important factors for me was figuring out how am I going to make this work alongside what I'm currently doing. And uh, the most important thing is for me is, is leverage the concept of leveraging others for their expertise and their time and um, their skill set. Like Gabe, I know one of the things you were talking about is, um, you know, we, you talked about logistics. Um, that is one of those things that is going to be really tough, especially for me who was, you know, I've never, uh, delivered a product from China to hubs across the world and, you know, made it into somebody's house before. So I rely on capable logistics partners um, that can do that. And th that is one of those things that is going to be so important to leverage. Yeah. And it's so important to just think through what is your current skill set and are those things going to contribute to you being able to run this business effectively? Now, Andrew, you already had a huge background in marketing. You already have a marketing company. You'd already done a ton of marketing. And so that's a huge value. You'd already run a business. That's a huge, valuable thing going into this new business, this other business, because there's a lot of stuff you already know. You've already made the mistakes over the last 10 years. And so doing a new one is like, well, I already, under I already understand how to start a business, grow a business, do these things. If a person has any kind of background in accounting, or any kind of background in customer service. Like there's certain things you just want to think through. What in my life has led up to this moment that's going to make me better suited to be successful? Mm -hmm. And to also understand the odds of success are very low. Very, very low. Almost zero. Like the, the chances you'll be successful long-term in any business, in any industry is almost zero. It's just, it's just so incredibly challenging. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think that's, although I will say, I will say that in relation to success in business, um, the ones that uh, do it can consistently do it. There's a, there seems to be a, a true formula. And for the most part, 80 business, 80% 80 of businesses fail within the first five years. So they say, and then 80% of those businesses fail within the next five. The number one reason that they fail is bad management. Um, and then, you know, not enough money, which relates to uh, management. Yeah. Cash flow. This is something I had to take. I took an online course recently about cash flow just to understand it better because it was something I've been struggling with, it, it, especially in board games when, you know, because Kickstarter, you have a huge influx of money. And it's like, okay, now I got to make sure that money lasts me long enough to do all the things I need to do to deliver the game that people paid for. And there's so many horror stories. And we had some recently of publishers just blowing all the money on things that they shouldn't have been spending money on anyway. 
And then they were dumb enough to tell all their backers, which is also another thing, as opposed to like, just go get a loan, man. Like, don't. <laughs> Good Lord. Anyway, totally different situation. I, I, I just, I don't understand. Like if you make a huge mistake, don't go, Hey guys, I made a big mistake and uh, oops. Like, no, you, you work on it. You fix it. You figure it out and make the thing better. And, and anyway, uh, yeah, just kind of no, it's right. It's so, it's so right. You have to be willing to take ownership of, which is another thing. Um, as an employee, you put hours on a clock and then you clock out and your life is yours. You get to do whatever you want for those uh, the time that you're not at work, your boss doesn't have the right. I mean, you know, sometimes they'll call you and be like, can you please work? Because we, you know, we need someone to fill in or whatever. And then you have the right and privilege to say, I can't because I had a thing. Right. But uh, during a business, there is no such thing. The buck stops at you. Right. So you're, you know, if, if somebody's yelling, if somebody's upset that the box came dinged and, you know, uh, or they haven't had an update for you, they had an update yesterday, but they want another one today. Um, that's you. You're the guy that responds or the girl, right? So Yeah, absolutely. Tough. And as you have scale, you know, I can't imagine the number of emails that the Frosthaven campaign gets with tens of thousands of backers. I can't imagine because I get a ton of emails and tons of messages and tons of customer service stuff for over 2,000 backer campaigns, you know, and a lot of those emails aren't even necessary. People will say, hey, you never sent me my game. And I'll look into the system and go, oh, well, you never submitted your, uh, your shipping address. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, my bad. Yeah, it's, it, like one one person, they sent me a super angry message because in my game design starter kit, it comes with a box sleeve because, and it's very clear on the campaign page. Like I wanted a box sleeve. That way you could get rid of that. And now you have a blank box that you can do whatever you want. You can put your game name on the top. Your kids can decorate it. You can do whatever you want. It's a blank slate for you to put <laughs> your game in. And I got a really angry message from someone about why does this come with a sleeve and this is useless and now the box is, is blank and this is so stupid. And it's like, oh, Okay, thanks. Thanks yeah. for your message. I, I, and it's just yeah. frustrating stuff. And you're going to be dealing with that. Now, hopefully you right. make enough money. You can hire someone to help you out with customer service and do some of these things that maybe you don't want to do or can't or aren't su suitable for. But mm -hmm. at the same time, that's more money out of your pocket. And now you're going to make sure that you have enough money to yep. print the game and all these other things. It's just a lot to, yep. to think about. All right. So you know, related to that, actually, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's this concept called eat that frog. That is the um, so there's never any shortage of things to do. In a business, you will be, you know, it'll take 28 hours a day of your time and you, you won't even have time to sleep, eat, shower, brush your teeth, do the basic things that, that we need to do, right? And um, the, the key is really separating out what is essential to do right now with the time that you have. And uh, there's a concept, I can't remember who wrote this book, but it's called Eat That Frog. The idea is that you have frogs are, uh, you know, this is more of a, maybe a, an American reference because we're, we're not accustomed to eating frogs. But um, the idea is that the fro a frog is a gross thing that you don't want to eat, but you, um, you know, the, in, in business, the analogy is that the frog represents the task that is the biggest result producing activity that you can do that day. So um, I would always put three frogs. Uh, I would I would write down in the morning three frogs that I needed to accomplish that day. Three big tasks that were result producing that were extremely important. Only three. It's not like you don't have to do, um, you know, three hundred or anything. It, three tasks, and make sure those things get done. Um, there are so many other things. I mean, you know, bottom line is that sometimes um, 
there are more important things to do than giving backers updates or responding to every email. If you get a thousand emails, you're just not physically going to be able to run your business and respond to all of those emails. So maybe you come up with a canned response and copy paste to every single email that talks, that asks the same question or whatever. You find ways to kind of leverage that time. And maybe that is one of your frogs, right? But the most important thing is to, is to do the things that move the ball forward. Right. And, uh, you know, you may have to uh, decide when, you know, when it comes to this or that, which one is more important. It's, it's so easy to spin your tires and you look at the speedometer and it says 100 miles an hour. And you look outside and you're not going anywhere because you're stuck in the mud. But you feel like you're moving, like your tires are moving. Your, your foot is all the way on the floor. The gas pedal is to the floor, but you're not going anywhere. And that happens so often in business, like you're saying, because you have all these emails and those emails aren't going to get your next game out in the public. You know, those emails aren't going to help you make more money on your bottom line next quarter. More than likely, maybe one of those emails in there is is a way to to do that. But more than likely, it's a lot of just kind of stuff you got to do. And so what are those big tasks? Now, a lot of people also, they start doing things kind of on the opposite end that you do when you get some success and they do those things a little early. Right. For instance, like before we were uh, recording, we were talking about how there's people that will go out and haven't done anything yet, but they've got some really nice business cards and they've got all these T-shirts printed and they got all these things done. And they went out and leased a new car and all this. It's like, yeah, but you haven't, you haven't done the thing yet. And uh, I think that's also really important to be aware. Like, don't pretend you're something that you're not yet. And now fake it till you make it. That's that's one idea, I guess. But like, I don't have business cards for my company. I don't need them. Yep. I don't care. I'm not going to go buy a bunch of business cards, especially right now. We're not even going to conventions or anything. Uh, <laughs> and like, that's just something to make you feel good. It's an ego boost, right? To have a t-shirt with your logo on it, to have a business card with your name and, you know, CEO and stuff like that. But is that necessary right now? Is that a good use of money? And so just thinking through all those things that go along with business and making sure you're doing things that move the needle, that get you towards your goals and aren't things that uh, make you feel good, but aren't actually valuable. It's so important. Just kind of think through those things. Absolutely. You know, I, I think about um, Elon Musk. There's a story of Elon Musk. He was making $300 million a month running Tesla and all these, you know, other companies. And he was sleeping on a friend's couch. Um, that's, that's what, that's what he was doing because he was single-mindedly focused on his business and doing what he wanted, his goals. Right. And, um, so he had just, you know, guys like that have ridiculous vision that are way beyond me. I'm, I'm okay. You know, 300 million a month is, is too much for just 300 million a year would be okay. <laughs> That'd be enough say. for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So let's talk about, let's talk about change. Cause a lot of people, they struggle. I mean, I think all of us struggle with change to a certain degree, but they, they have an idea. They have a vision. They have something they want to accomplish. They want, maybe they want to travel down the self-publishing role. They want to start a company. They want to travel down the self-publishing road. They want to start a company. They want to kind of turn their ideas into real life, but then they run into the resistance. They run into life. They run into all of these obstacles. And you shared with me a really interesting formula for change. Tell people about it and how you can use this formula to overcome the resistance. Yeah. So a uh, little bit of background. I was, uh, what yeah, I, I call it wet behind the ears. Um, it's how I was taught to me is I was wet behind the ears in business. I didn't know what I was doing. And so I needed somebody to help me. And uh, by the way, one of the most important things you can do is get a great mentor. Gabe, you're games, several games ahead of me in my publishing venture. And you have provided, first of all, your podcast is amazing. And you've also provided incredibly awesome, you know, feedback for me. Um, other great publishers that have, uh, have helped me. And, you know, that's really helped me avoid a lot of mistakes, but, um, the, the background is in, in business. My first mentor 
was the chief marketing officer of Lockheed. And they ran a $3 billion a year marketing campaign for Lockheed. They marketed the F-35 and other, all sorts of other things that was, uh, or that just, you know, they were a high up dude. They, they were the CEO of Camelback, uh, which was the, the little backpack that, you know, with the sippy straw. Um, so they, they grew that company from nothing and, and sold it for $900 million. And, you know, they're just an amazing opportunity to, to learn from this person. So I took this class from this person and I learned about this, this formula. It's called the formula for change. And um, I guess, you know, it, it might not make sense if I use just the letters, but your resistance to change is what we're, what we're talking about. And um, the, the idea behind resistance, you, um, everybody is always in, in your life where you're at right now, you're at a certain level of comfort, but you're not 100% comfortable. You are what um, I call comfortably miserable. So you're miserable, but you're not miserable enough that you're willing to change, right? And so everybody reaches this point of being comfortably miserable in their lives, and and um, you're just you're you're kind of annoyed with your current situation, but maybe there's not quite enough that you're willing to do to to change it. It's 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 okay enough, but you wish things were better, right? And uh, this is where you know when you ask people how they're doing, they say can't complain. It's they can't complain because they can't. It's not because they don't want to. Um, so, uh, so if if I don't so don't say you can't complain because that means you want to complain but you can't. So um, the uh, the idea is that your resistance to change um, is at whatever a certain level, and there's this formula that has to be greater than your resistance to change if you want to ch to make a meaningful change and do better in life and business and and all of that. And, um, that is, that is this, your dissatisfaction with your current situation. You, you add whatever that, let's just pretend it's a number. You add that number to the vision that you have for changing and you, um, add your first steps to, to, to that formula. You have to, you have to have, you have to have a vision or you're, you're not going to know which direction to go. And you have to actually take steps to make that you know, toward that, that vision in order to make anything happen. Um, now the veracity in which you take those steps and you, the, the, you know, the, how qualified your vision is, is determined by your dissatisfaction. So your dissatisfaction with your current situation. So, um, real easy example that is, uh, the way it was first explained to me was I have this vision for, um, this beautiful house. I'm in this one bedroom apartment with my wife and I have this vision for a beautiful house on the Hill. It's got like eight bedrooms and six bathrooms and it's a very expensive house, but it is awesome. And I really want it. It's a clear thing that I can see. It's my vision, right? Um, and maybe I'm working and that kind of thing, but my dissatisfaction isn't quite there. I'm, I'm okay. I'm comfortably miserable in my apartment, but at the same time, it's not so bad. Uh, now w my wife and I, we get pregnant, we have a child. And if you're like me, you, you're going to have six, I have six children, um, six children in a one bedroom apartment would make me quite dissatisfied. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you feel the same way, Gabe, but that is one um, way to put it. Dissatisfied. I would be dissatisfied. Yeah. Okay. I think that's like, maybe you probably could say a little harsher than that, but I know what you mean. Yeah, so there's there's a certain level of dissatisfaction that comes with, and actually, Gabe, you're you're getting there, man. You uh, you've got you've got a growing family too, right? Yeah, I got four, but we're done, man. If we have another one, um, I will be dissatisfied. We'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so the idea behind this house, when you know, I it's got my wife and I, and we have six kids, 
all of a sudden that eight bedroom house seems less of a luxury and more of a necessity. And so that's kind of what I mean by dissatisfaction. So um, a lot of the time when people are in this, this situation where they're like, I want to self-publish and I want to, you know, um, a lot of the time they're, maybe their games never actually come to fruition or even, even worse. I think a worse situation is when you publish one game, you know, it's like on shark tank. If you've, if you've ever watched shark tank, a lot of the time you'll hear people say, uh, you know, the sharks will say, you know, you've got a product, you don't have a company. Um, if you've got one product and that's it, like if my company, if all I ever did was publish deliverance one time and I had a game, um, I would have a product. The product would have value. I could sell the product, the rights to the product to somebody, but the company wouldn't have value. You look at a company like uh, Stonemeyer Games, and they have several lines of products. They've got side, they've got wingspan, they've got viticulture, and a whole bunch of other products that are great. They've got a brand that people trust, and that's value. That's valuable, right? That's worth money to a company, and um, that kind of thing. But the the idea is that you can't just have one game and that's it. You've got to build a a you've got to focus on like your future. So a lot of the time when people go to self-publish, they're like, all right, I'm very dissatisfied. I want to, you know, I'm taking first steps to publish a game and I have a vision to publish the game. That's a huge mistake. Your vision is so small, you know, and um, the way that the equation works out, it's, uh, you know, you, you actually multiply your vision times your first step. So if your vision is low, your first steps you know, let's say you're going to take a hundred steps and your vision is zero. You're going <laughs> to, you're not making it anywhere. It doesn't matter how, you know? And, and so the, the idea behind the self-publishing route is your vision has to be very importantly to build a company. You're, what you're doing is building a company and decide very quickly if your vision is for, is, is to have a hobby or to build something that has value. Because if it's to have a hobby, um, you know, there, there are less expensive hobbies out there like fishing or, um, you know, maybe playing board games. Buying board games is a whole lot less expensive than running a board game publishing company, right? And um, so I don't know what you think about that as far as vision goes, but I, a lot of the time I feel like people with a vision of just getting their product published, that is not a good reason to self-publish. Um, it's, uh, you have to have more, you have to have more if you want a business, uh, if you want to follow up. Yeah, completely agree. And this is something, the way I think about it is how do you turn your want to into a have to and really have that mentality of, I have to do this. It's not, oh, you know, it'd be nice if I got my game on a shelf one day, you know, or, or whatever your dream, whatever dream you're, you're chasing after. There were so many people I ran into when I was in college because I ended up playing football on a very high level. I went way beyond what anyone ever anticipated or would have expected out of me, especially if you ever looked at me. And so because of the really, way I bro. look, well, I was way better Rudy, man. I actually had talent. But anyway, um, <laughs> hey, that's I was right there. Oh, yeah, get out of here. But um, I had so many people that come up to me and they'd be like, man, I really want to do what you did. I want to go and I want to make the team and I want to play and I have these opportunities, whatever. And I would say, okay, that's, that's cool. Um, what time every morning are you waking up to go get in the weight room? How many, uh, how many days are you going, you know, going out on the intramural field and just running sprints? How many times a week do you have people throwing you the ball or, you know, doing the skill work for whatever position you want to play? And 99.9% .9 of the time people would give me, oh, yeah, I'm not doing any of those things. And it's like, okay, yeah. so maybe you want to, but you don't have to. With me, it was a have to. I have to do this. This is something I have to accomplish. And even if I fail, at least I'll know that I gave it everything I had. 
but it was like, it's have to. And so that was a good driving force. I have to do this. And when I started my publishing company, I started doing a lot more things business-wise and board games. It was, I got so tired of waiting on other people's permission. I had pitched so many games and I've been honestly, frustratingly, I've been lied to several times. I've been led on by some publishers about some different projects. And I was just so frustrated with waiting on somebody else's permission that I was like, you know what? I'm going to bet on myself. I'm going to figure out what I need to do. And in my case, I had interviewed hundreds of people. So I, I had a pretty good base of knowledge. I had a lot of people I could reach out to and get some help with. So it wasn't just like, I'm just going to figure this out. No, there was a lot more planning into it. But the main thing was I want to bet on myself. I don't want to sit around waiting on somebody else's permission. I'm just going to go do it. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to make mistakes and it's going to be hard and I'm going to lose money here and there. But at the end of the day, it's on me to make this work and I'm not waiting on anybody else. And so I feel like it's just a matter of like internally. And that formula is really helpful of coming, figuring out like, what's my vision? What are these first steps? You know, how am I going to overcome my dissatisfaction, my the resistance, and then mm-hmm. turn it into something maybe special, maybe not, but at least you'll know. Absolutely. I would much rather, and, and this is really kind of a lesson for life, I guess, go and fail, go and waste money, go and, and try something and, and fall flat on your face and get up and learn some lessons and then do better next time. Right. Um, I think that there are always, uh, there, man, there are so many things that come to mind, you know, um, one of them is I, my goals that I had. I remember when I started my first business, this was in um, 2009, right during the middle. I didn't, I didn't know that there was this crazy housing crisis and that business really stunk to, to start at that time. And so I started a business and was trying to sell websites and whatnot. And um, I just, um, I, I, it, it became quite easy to fail on myself. I'll, I'll admit, you know, not proud to admit, but I think everybody does. I failed so much. Um, there were a lot of days where I would make phone calls. I try to make cold calls to, to make sales and whatnot, and just make, you know, get leads and appointments and whatnot with business people. And sometimes there would be, you know, I would, I would try to make 50 calls a day which is a lot for me, but I know some people, other people can just crush it with a hundred. I just wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't built like that. So I would try to do 50. And there were a lot of days where I would make one to five calls, get my feelings hurt and, or just be too nervous. And then I would, you know, stop. I would put the phone down. It felt like a thousand pounds, put the phone down. I'd play Elder Scrolls Oblivion for eight hours until my wife got home. And I would be like, Oh my goodness, my wife is walking up the stairs right now. And you know, to our second story apartment. And, um, I would jump on a phone call, close elder scrolls down really quick and, you know, make it look like I was working. Um, and really at the end of the day, it was like, you know, I failed on myself that whole eight hours. I could have done something instead. I chose to do nothing. And that is entirely boils down to me. And I, I have no one else to blame other than myself for failing, but I still felt bad. It was, it was felt like crud. And I want to follow up. I'm going to follow up on that real quick. And then I'm going to yeah. get what you learned. Cause I, I went yeah. through the same thing. I, I still go through the same thing and I call it straightening chairs. Right. And I'll give you an example. When I was in ministry and I was uh, actually a pastor of this church uh, out in, in a really tough neighborhood, it was an incredible congregation. The average congregant was a 16 year old guy and it was just an amazing church to be a part of. And I was so just blessed to be there and part of that church for, for several years. But one thing I found was that there was, there's always so much to do because a church like that has no money. Right. And so we can't hire all these people. And so a lot of the work was on me and the guy that was the worship leader slash janitor slash youth director. Okay. And so we were wearing all the hats and we were trying to figure this stuff out. And so so often I would get so overwhelmed because there would be decisions that need to be made. There'd be meetings that need to be had. There'd be a sermon that need to be written. There'd be a Bible study that need to be figured out all these things to do. And I would find myself in the sanctuary straightening the chairs 
and just making sure that the rows were lined up and the, like this is not going to move the needle towards anything positive. This is this is no one's even going to notice that fifteen year old dude's not going to come in church like oh man Pastor Barrett got the chairs all straight this Sunday. No one cares, right? <laughs> But I would find yep. myself because I was overwhelmed and there was so much to do. And I would just check out and go, you know what? I'm just going to go over here and I'm moving. My body's like, oh, we're being productive. We're moving around. We're accomplishing. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. It, it feels that way. Again, but my, I'm, my, my tires are moving, but I'm not going anywhere. And so yep. tell me about what you did or what you do now to overcome that and how, because I feel like there's a lot of people. You get overwhelmed and now you're just scrolling through Facebook on your phone or you're just watching Netflix. And how do you get over that and do something actually productive? Yeah, uh, for me, I learned that when my goals were about myself, I was actually willing to fail on myself. I was willing to quit on myself and because the only one that would feel the, the I mean, you know, the sad truth is that my wife, uh, who decided to join herself to me together in holy matrimony until death do us part, kind of got stuck with, with me and my failures as well. But um, so eventually it would just be, you know, failing on more than just me. I didn't see it that way at the time. I thought, oh, I, I, I messed it up. But what changed it for me was making my goals about someone else other than myself. I looked at, um, I remember I actually went through uh, business school. I have a, an undergraduate degree in uh, business and, or business administration, I guess, uh, which taught me how to be a middle level manager for someone else and not work for myself at all. But um, the, uh, the idea was that I had a lot of group projects and I tended to take the leadership role. I think people that start a business are people that have that nature in them that they want to take charge of things and, and uh, do it their way and whatnot. And I tended to be that guy in um, group projects. And I was, I was a really great project partner to have because I would make sure that we got an A, you know, I just wanted to do my best and why it was because other people relied on me. Other people were depending on me. And I didn't, I mean, I'm okay with just, you know, maybe begging my teacher to turn it in the next day or whatever, or maybe even just, you know, if I had an essay due, I would stay up all night. I remember one time I just stayed up for, you know, nine hours or whatever between the, between um, 9 PM to 6 AM writing a paper that was like 20 pages and turning it into an English class, uh, you know, earlier in college. And I never did that during business school because other people were relying on me and I couldn't fail them. And when I changed my goal about, you know, from me to my wife, uh, the, the first meaningful goal in my life was, um, well, rather in my business life, my business career was, I want to help my wife quit her job. I want to bring her home and, and, uh, so that she doesn't have to do this anymore. She had a quite a, a very, very stressful job. She would come home some days at, you know, she'd get up at, uh, you know, leave to be at work by six in the morning and then come back by, you know, about four in the afternoon. And she just would be gassed out. And, you know, it was, it was tough to watch and deal with sometimes. And the moment that I made my goal about her and bringing her home, that was, oh my goodness, it was so motivating. It was like, I cannot not pick up this phone. It is a thousand pounds, but guess who is able to lift this weight right now, the guy that's going to bring his wife home, you know, and, and I just, it, I was willing to quit on myself, but I was not willing to quit on my spouse. Yeah, that's great. The way I look at it is you have to increase the pressure 
whether it's like you're like you're saying right there with your wife and or maybe it's accountability. You're bringing other people on that you don't want to let them down. You don't want to fail because now you're failing them. Maybe it's a deadline. You're, you you know, create deadlines that actually have consequences if you miss them. But whatever it is, create pressure. I remember when I interviewed Scott Gata for um, from uh, Renegade Games, he talked about how he started Renegade like the week his wife had a baby. And like this was their primary, going to be their primary income. And I was like, that's yeah. kind of crazy. He goes, no, that's what I, that's what I needed. I needed that pressure to be successful. Like, that, yeah. like failure is not an option. There is no safety net. There is no such thing as failure. I'm going to make this work. Now, so I think that's one way to do it. And now it's not for everybody. But you know, hopefully, if you listen to this, you understand how you can pressure yourself and get positive results and not you know have right. a mental breakdown. But uh, also scheduling. Yeah. So when I was struggling when I was in ministry, the, my problem was I would sit down and I would realize there are a hundred things to do. I'm going to do none of them. And, and, and so because it was too much, there are too many things. And so what helped me was scheduling and saying, okay, on a Monday at 10 a.m. from 10 to noon, this is what I do. And then I go eat lunch. And then from noon to two, I'm going to do this. And from two to five, I'm going to do this. And from five to eight, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to go home. And But having things scheduled out and having certain times, certain days that I was accomplishing certain tasks, all of a sudden it wasn't overwhelming because I didn't sit down to do a hundred things. I sat down, look at the schedule and go, okay, here's the one thing that I do right now. And it was so much easier to actually get things done because it was all compartmentalized. And so that was another way to kind of keep from constantly feeling overwhelmed. And so hopefully that helps somebody listening to this. Absolutely. And you know, there's this, um, this, I guess I, I forget what it's called, but something that you divide into a quadrants, um, there's urgency and importance. Uh, so if you were to look at a, um, you know, I don't know, a chart where the bottom was how urgent something was. And the, let's say the left side, it was the, uh, I guess the what the y-axis was how important something was. It, you really get things that fall into four different um, areas: things that are urgent and very important. For example, paying your house payment um, or you know something like that, right? Things that you need to do by a certain date, and if you don't, you're you're wasted. Um, and other things that are maybe they're urgent, but they're not important. A uh, phone call would be a great example. Um, if you get an email or if you get a phone call, you do not need to respond right now. Um, now, of course, uh, in, they're always outliers. Sometimes certain phone calls are very urgent and very important. But um, the tasks that you should really focus on are the ones that urgent and important is, is yeah, you, you have to do those things right now. Like if, if somebody calls and says, my house is on fire, I need you to help me right now. And you can't let that wait. And you might not have expected to do that today, but that's what you're doing. You're, you're, you're helping a friend survive a, a house fire. I don't know. So there are other things that would be important, but not urgent. Uh, these would maybe, if you're running a Kickstarter campaign, uh, they would relate to your quality of art, the, the, um, just getting a playthrough video done, other, you know, making sure your manufacturing is is squared away and that you have a good uh, manufacturing deal, making sure your shipping partners are lined up. All of those things are important, but those are the things that you can let slide. And that's where I think in business, people that are able to focus on those important things that you don't need to have done right away, but you should um, th- those are the things you should focus on. That's what you should spend the bulk of your time doing things that are very, very important, but not urgent. Um, so yeah, so I ho- hope that helps somebody, but al- also, you know, one other thing that I, that I think about is, um, this, so there was this, um, about two weeks ago, I had a, a friend request that I would, uh, mentor, a young, uh, young guys, 18 years old, 
or 19 years old, you know, just graduated high school and wants to start a business and and that kind of thing. So he was asking for advice on e-commerce because, you know, my, my buddy heard that I'm, you know, an e-commerce uh, guy. And, and so sent me this, this person to, to talk with and just hear what he had to say and give him good advice. And so um, this, this guy was a, um, a, somebody that was going through a course um, from a guru on how to get an e-commerce website going and sell, you know, make a hundred thousand dollars a month to selling stuff. Um, really what he would do is like source products from other vendors. And when he made a sale on his website, other people would fulfill the order. It's something like that. And, um, which can be a good business. And I asked him, you know, Hey, it's, uh, April, uh, now it's, you know, later in, in the month of May, but, uh, that we're recording this, but, um, it was, uh, April, we had this conversation and he started in January with this course. And I'm like, okay, where's your website? He's like, oh, I don't have a website yet. I've just been, you know, doing research and figuring out how to do it right. And and that kind of thing. I'm like, well, I mean, you, you have not convinced me that you really want to do this, you know, because if you really did want to do this, if you really wanted any commerce business, you would have a website. It's been four months and you don't have a website. So it is my belief that you don't want an e-commerce business and it kind of hurt his feelings a little bit, but you know, I, I told him that, look, you know, when, when I hear what you want, the best definition for what you want, or I mean, sorry, the best proof for what you want is what you have, what you have right now. And so, you know, you might be saying, oh, I want to um, have a successful business and this and that. And um, the reality is that, you know, it's hard to prove if you don't have that right now. Um, now, I know, Gabe, let's say if I were to say this, you know, if you were to say, I want to have a thriving podcast with me like five years ago, I would say, well, you don't have a podcast, bro. Um, I'm what I'm not. I'm not trying to like stomp people that intend to get someplace. I mean, you do have a thriving podcast right now. And that is great evidence of what you wanted, right? Amazing evidence of what everything that you're saying to me. You uh, now work full time in this industry and you are tryharding at every single aspect and you're firing on all cylinders and you're making things happen. Really excited for Robomon, by the way. That's going to be a cool thing. And, um, you know, it's just, it just shows that you are doing what you say you wanted to do. What you say you wanted, I, it's very evident to me. And so for those people that are out there thinking, okay, I want to self-publish or, or do, do I or do I not, you, it's worthwhile to just think about what do I want out of life? What do, you know, and, and the truth is that a lot of people can't afford to spend that, that time away from, I mean, you know, the bottom line is if I were to, you know, start this business, I'm taking time from other things that I could be doing. And you know, in, in the end, my life either has to simplify or I'm going to get less time with my wife or, you know, um, and kids or, or, or something, but you, you need, you need to show if, if you want great mentorship and you want people to believe in you and you want, you want people to, um, follow you and to, to, you know, eventually invest in you. Um, you need to prove the, what you want to them. Um, and bottom line is it's best shown by what you have. That's why nowadays in Kickstarter, it used to be a lot easier to show an idea. Nowadays on Kickstarter, you have to have 90% of your art done or whatever, 60% of your art done just so that it, you can show the complete game uh, because people want you to prove 
that you are going that you're able to deliver that the product the product's going to be amazing they're not willing to take your word for it they need to see it and the same thing is true really in business you know um so it means a whole lot when you i mean it doesn't mean that much when you say what you want it means a whole lot when you um go out and get it yeah you know absolutely and it might just be a not right now kind of thing you might just not have the skill set you might not have the time the energy the money whatever there's all sorts of factors that go into this but at the end of the day it's are you doing anything to move yourself actually closer, not just talking about it, not just researching, not just reading a book or taking a course, but actually doing something that's going to lead towards something tangible, something real. And what does that look like? And so with game design, are you actually working on a game? Or are you just thinking about it uh, with publishing? Are you actually working out on mm-hmm. figuring out the business stuff and, and getting a business license and talking to people that you can bring on your team and figuring those things out as far as fulfillment and shipping? Are you doing the, the work and sending the emails and making the phone calls? Are you doing those things or is it just mm-hmm. an idea? And it might just be you're not ready yet. And that's totally fine too. I, I hope people yep. don't feel like, oh, I got to do this now. Maybe, you know, again, pressure's good. It's good to have deadlines and all that. But at the same time, you just got to have, you have to make those decisions for yourself based on where you're at in life. Andrew, this has been good. This has been great, man. Any other thoughts, any closing ideas as far as kind of final advice, as far as somebody's thinking about, do I self-publish? Do I not? What would you tell them? Yeah. You know, in in the end, the first product that you make is your baby. Um, A lot of the time, you know, people feel this way where the very first game they have, they spend more time on it than they should. They spend, you know, they take longer to make a prototype and get it into the table and that kind of thing than, than any other game. And uh, I mean, I, I remember asking a publisher, would you treat this like your baby? And basically the answer was no, we haven't worked on that. Our baby is this one and your project will take it seriously, but it's just not our baby. It's like that, that feeling. And, you know, somebody's going to call that baby ugly. You know, if you unveil it publicly, you're going to get criticism one way or another. Either your publisher is going to do it or you being the publisher, you're going to have the market decide if your project is worth funding. And that's one of those things that with deliverance, um, at the end of the day, no matter what I think, no matter how amazing I think that that game is, which I do think it's great. And you should go play it on Tabletop Simulator right now. For 1995, you can get Tabletop Simulator and I don't know, we're just... I'm just like selling something now, but the idea is that the market will decide if it's worth it. And that's, what's going to happen with your game too. And you need to be satisfied with what the market decides. The main thing is that you have to decide for yourself is, are you willing to do what it takes to put your product in the absolute, to give it its absolute best chance for success? So that's what I've tried to do with deliverance. I hope to make it a really great marketing case study that it really, um, you know, we there's this concept, blue ocean and red ocean, um, where red ocean is filled with competitors and blue ocean is like, hey, there's this new thing that kind of that doesn't have anything that can compete with it. I'm, I'm trying to prove that there's an additional market that exists that has not been targeted yet with uh, the game of deliverance. And, you know, on man, on June 8th, we're going to find out if that's true or not. And um, it's very nerve wracking to put your baby out there, but you've got to do it. You've got to do it. Eventually you have to, you have to let your baby out of the nest and let it fly. And if it falls, you know, that's, that's, that's the way the cookie crumbles, I guess. I don't know. But um, I do think that it's very important for you to um, be willing to take, uh, to, 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 to fail in the end, you know, um, and fail publicly. 
you know, and learn and get better and do better next time. Yeah, absolutely. Andrew, this has been awesome. Like you said, Deliverance up on Kickstarter right now. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with the campaign. I hope it does extremely well and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thanks, Gabe. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?